This is episode 162 of the Swallow Your Pride podcast, and today's guest is Selena Reese. She received her master's degree from the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill in 2003. She has worked in acute care, outpatient, and inpatient rehabilitation settings. She currently serves as the Director of Educational Resources for Carolina Speech Pathology, where she teaches fees training and fees interpretation courses and coordinates continuing education courses for SLPs on the topic of dysphagia. She carries an active caseload providing mobile fee services. She is a board-certified specialist in swallowing and an ACE Continuing Education Award recipient. to the Swallow Your Pride podcast. I'm your host, Teresa Richard. I'm a board-certified specialist in swallowing and swallowing disorders, a mobile fees business owner, and founder of the MedSLP Collective. This podcast is all about delivering the latest evidence-based practice to medical SLPs everywhere. Whether you're a new clinician seeking tangible tools for treatment or a seasoned vet stuck in a rut, my goal is to help ditch the old school ways of the past that no longer serve you or your patients, to reinvigorate your passion for our field, to broaden your knowledge about our scope of practice, and to inspire you to practice at the top of your license. So if you're listening, I encourage you to swallow your pride, be open and willing to learn, because let's face it, your patients deserve that kind of care. With that, let's dive right in. This episode is sponsored by Utterly Financial. Utterly is the company behind Craig Goldschlager. Craig is an experienced financial specialist that works exclusively with us, SLPs, and private practice practitioners across the country. Over the last few months, I've received tons of favorable feedback from listeners who've contacted Craig in two main areas. Implementing high-quality disability insurance. SLPs get disabled all the time. Don't think it can't happen to you. You need a policy you can trust to deliver should the worst happen. He's also utilized his proven framework for buying or selling a mobile fees business or private practice. 98% of business owners do not know what their business is worth. Craig's process will help you receive fair and reasonable value for your practice. If you don't have a disability insurance policy or a roadmap for buying or selling a private practice, you should contact Craig today. Craig is opening up his calendar to listeners of the SYP podcast and offering a free 30-minute consultation. You should take advantage of this. Visit utterlyfinancial.com forward slash SYP to set up a time with him. Utterly Financial, U-T-T-E-R-L-Y-F-I-N-A-N-C-I-A-L.com forward slash SYP. And I can personally attest to working with Craig and this guy knows his stuff. So reach out to him if you'd like to set up a consultation. Just a quick disclaimer that all statements and opinions expressed in this episode do not reflect on the organizations associated with the speakers and are their own opinions solely. Hello, Selena. Hi, Teresa. Thank you so much for joining me again. Thank you for having me back. I'm excited to be here. Yes, yes. So I will say Selena and I had a topic picked out that we're both very passionate about to begin with, but then something else has happened in dysphagia world in the last week that we felt we really needed to address, something we're both very passionate about. So we're going to kind of segue away from what we were originally going to talk about for just a little bit and touch on this hot topic, and then we'll get to it 
in a minute. But first of all, Selena, tell the people who you are. So my name is Selena Reese. I am a speech pathologist. I have been since I graduated in 2003 from the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. And currently I've I've worked in all kinds of settings, but currently my job is working um, in mobile fees. I work for Carolina Speech Pathology. And um, there I'm also the director of educational resources. So I do lots of teaching. I do lots of connecting people to access to CEUs and um, really enjoy that. So that's, that's what I do now. Awesome. All right. So what are we going to talk about first? Okay. So yeah, we originally were, were set up to talk about um, getting your BCSS, but since um, we scheduled this meeting, we, there's been a hot topic as Teresa mentioned. And so we uh, thought maybe we'd briefly discuss the recent publication in the ASHA leader. So it was an article titled safely assess swallowing during COVID. It's complicated. And there were several authors that um, had little sections within this article and they were really excellent until we got down to the the section about sniffs, and um, the author talked about how um, how they are prohibiting conducting fees and other aerosol generating procedures within their facilities, and um, went on to say that there's a positive side to reduced instrumental access. And I'm quoting here: SLPs see how effectively our bedside clinical assessments determine patient swallowing function and make dietary adjustments to improve their quality of life. So that is the statement that I think has gotten quite a few medical speech pathologists kind of scratching their heads. Yeah, yeah. or bashing their heads well, yeah, that. against a wall. <laughs> exactly, exactly. So, you know, it just was, I, I was very frustrated when I read that. And so I actually composed a letter I, I wrote a letter to the editor, but those are limited to 250 words. So ah. yeah, yeah. I had a lot more to say than, <laughs> oh, gosh. than 250 words. So I did that. And then I, I went on and, and, and wrote a little bit more just addressing each of the, the falsehoods within those statements. So first of all, fees is not an aerosol generating procedure. Coughing is aerosol generating. So fees and modifieds are not any... Um, more aerosol generating than doing a bedside swallow study. And then the implication that we could initiate treatment and make diet changes based on a clinical assessment is just false. That's, there's lots of research that has shown that that is not true. Yes, there are cases where we may make diet changes without instrumentation, but those are are few and far between. Those are special cases as a rule. In general, we need instrumentation in order to determine how to treat swallowing and um, what is the most appropriate diet for our patients. Yeah. Yeah. I I think what's, what's so maddening, so, so, so maddening is... The actual leader is, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, it's essentially just like a newsletter to SLPs, right? Like it's not, it's not peer-reviewed articles. It's not, you know, actual evidence. It's not, you know, peer-reviewed journal articles. But the fact of the matter is anybody can write an article for the ASHA leader, but so many people read it that you think what you're reading is standard practice. Right. And this statement could not be farther from the truth. And I think what kills me is that 
even the ASHA journals, if you look in there, anything about instrumentals, anything about bedside, anything about dysphagia, we just have paper after paper after paper after paper of having to use instrumentals. And I think, you know, I was even part of a paper earlier this year. When was this paper published in the dysphagia journal? June 20th or June 9th, 2020, I was part of a paper with Mark Fritz and Dr. Brodsky, Dr. Suter. And it was all about how we do these procedures during COVID. And it was giving guidelines about how we are, how this is the standard of care, how this is how we treat our patients. And just because there's a pandemic doesn't mean we completely neglect their care. So sure, we have to do things differently, but it doesn't mean we abandon them. And I feel like this statement just full on says, go ahead and abandon our patients and just forget everything that researchers and clinicians have been saying for the last 20 years about what is the best standard of care for our patients. And I think that's why it's just such a slap in the face to so many people that treat patients with dysphagia every single day, especially one, those of us that do instrumentals all the time, because we're the ones that see how drastically different the swallow looks under instrumentation as opposed to the presentation at the bedside. Absolutely. And the thing um, you know that really... I keep focusing on is the code of ethics. The code of ethics doesn't go away just because of a pandemic, right? So we might have to hit the pause button while we figure out, like you you worked on figuring out safe procedures for our patients, but um, now that we have them and we can perform instrumental assessments while still keeping our patients safe, um, we need to be doing them and we could be doing a lot of harm by by not performing imaging, especially in this fragile population in the skilled nursing setting. Yeah. Okay. Well, I think I said my soapbox piece. Yeah. yeah. (laughs) So anyways, so Selena did create a petition. Yes. Yeah. So it's available on change.org. And we'll link it in the show notes and yeah, we'll link it here. Yeah. I didn't put it in the pre-notes because we didn't know we were going to talk about this, but yeah, I'll (laughs) I'll submit it. And I think the more signatures we get, the more likely we can encourage the ASHA leader to publish some information correcting these, you know, misinformed, potentially harmful statements by the author. Yeah. So I think that's the thing is it's, yes, we want ASHA to retract this statement, but not only do we want them to retract it, we want them to, to explain why it's just so wrong and just so damaging to our profession and to our career. And it's, I feel like we've come so, so far in advocating for instrumental assessments and then this happens and it feels like we just went back 20 years. So it does feel like we went back 20 years. And the thing that worries me is I do think that most clinicians know that they need imaging before they initiate a treatment um, program or, you know, before significantly making, you know, diet changes. But when people are told this from a person or a, a entity that has power and clout, I think it can make, you know, younger clinicians, or clinicians that are maybe less secure question what they've been taught and what they've known to understand. And so I think if if ASHA kind of steps up and fixes this mistake, I think it can um, help people feel confident that ASHA is an organization that supports evidence-based practice and advocates for us doing what's right by our patients. Yeah, I think that's all we want. (laughs) That's all we want. (laughs) Just to feel supported by our own organization. Right. Okay, awesome. Yeah. Where should we go from here, Selena? So, yeah. So I know you always ask about 
an article that really made an impact. And um, the one that I chose, um, I, I believe I've heard someone else choose this as well, but this one was really powerful for me. And this is the article that was published in the International Journal of Language and Communication Disorders. Um, it's entitled Cough Response to Aspiration in Thin and Thick Liquids During Fees in Hospitalized Patients. And it's by um, Miles McFarland, Scott, and Hunting. And I think this really ties in nicely to our discussion about this recent piece in the ASHA leader because what, what they were looking at in this study is comparing thin liquids and thick liquids in two different um, volume measures and how patients respond. So is, are there changes in whether or not there's penetration and aspiration within trials of the same viscosity and then across the viscosity? So they had several hypotheses. They hypothesized that the, the thinner liquids would be more likely to be aspirated, uh, that there would be a variability in cough response um, with the same bolus type across multiple presentations, that high volume fluids are more likely to elicit, elicit a cough than smaller, less volume, and then that there would be a variability in cough response across viscosity. So they looked at thin and mildly thick, or if you're using the um, national dysphagia, it would be nectar. And um, they looked at 268 fees. It was across 180 participants, and they looked at thin water in 5 and 50 ml volumes and mildly thick in 5 and 50 ml volumes. And I'm just going to skip on down to the, to the takeaways here. They found that there was variation within the same viscosity across boluses. So this supports why we need to, when we're doing our instrumentals, to test multiple trials to make sure that we can really see a good sample, right? If we look at just one and they aspirate, that could be an outlier and you could give them 10 more presentations and they do just fine. Okay. Also, um, they, it was more likely to, I'm sorry, patients were more likely to aspirate and more likely to cough with the thinner liquids. Patients were more likely to aspirate the, the thin than the mildly thick. Um, however, this is the thing that I was like, oh my gosh, they found that some patients aspirated nectar that did not aspirate thin. They also found that when people aspirated thin and nectar, some of the patients were audible or they coughed with the thin liquids, and those same patients were silent with the nectar thick liquids. So that just really, first of all, in, in all the fees that I've done, I've seen quite a few where the patient does okay with thins, but they aspirate nectar. And I'm like, what is going on here, right? And it's not always, you know, you would assume, oh, it's residue that happens after the swallow. And that's, that doesn't seem to be the case. So this article, I was like, yes, finally, somebody is able to kind of um, document and publish something that, that we've seen in, in practice. But this also is really speaks huge volumes as to why we need instrumentation. If your patient is less likely to cough with nectar thick liquids, they may look like they're doing better at the bedside and they're not. And then you're putting them on a diet that is A, less pleasurable, B, less safe. They've done other research studies of what is it, Robbins in 2008? 
six, six I think something yeah. like that <laughs> where they found that patients over time on thickened liquids were more likely to develop aspiration pneumonia um, not to mention all the other things that go along with reduced intake and all of that so I just really really love this article and I think one quote at the end of the article they say these findings highlight the poor reliability of the CSC for determining the effectiveness of thick liquids where aspiration cannot be directly visualized so there you go yep Beautiful. I know. I, know. I, I love that. I love that paper. I think, like I said, those of us that do instrumentals constantly, I always say, you know, I'm never surprised by what I find because it's always surprising. You know, you just, you see these patients that you think are just doing beautifully and then you get in there and it's a mess or it's the opposite. It's patients who think, oh, there's no way they can handle thin liquids or regular diet. And then you do it and it's totally fine. You know, it's just, you just truly don't know unless you're looking and we just can't, it's so harmful to our patients to be making these blanket statements. Like if you, you know, if you aspirate on nectar, then you must have honey, you know, and and this article just shows the exact opposite that some patients that aspirate on nectar may be better on thin, which, you know, a lot of us that do these, a lot of times we know that. So um, it's getting, you know, kind of these younger clinicians or the, the naysayers on board with that. Right. Well, and the thing is, I feel like with COVID right now, I'm seeing more and more people coming into these sniffs that I'm going to do fees for, and they're being placed on diets without instrumentals. And I'm mostly doing upgrade upgrades. Even people who are NPO that were, were given a peg. And I'm not saying, you know, sometimes people aren't alert enough, or, or I'm not saying that they haven't improved since they were in the hospital. But if they're not even getting an instrumental, we don't know. And then a lot of times the clinicians that receive these patients are continuing a treatment plan that wasn't based on an assessment of the underlying physiology. And it just like is shocking to me that insurance providers would pay for services when we don't, we're just blindly guessing at how to treat the patient. And so, you know, it's, it's not all about just the diet. It's about quality of care. And if you're taking a patient's time and billing for therapy services, we need to be doing something that has been proven to work. Yeah. I I think you hit the nail on the head with the insurance because I think some insurances definitely are cracking down. And I think, you know, to go back to this statement, a lot of the insurance companies don't even agree with this statement that was written in the Asha leader. I know there was, I contracted with this one home health company and, and it, it was a very progressive group and they would only treat dysphagia if the patient had had an instrumental done. And, and I just, I was so amazed and wished that every organization ran that way. And, you know, they just said, it's, we're not going to get reimbursed if we don't have the instrumental to back it up. So, right. And yeah. think about all the fees that you've done where the patient has, you know, an underlying esophageal issue or they're coughing because of backflow or they're changes in vocal quality has more to do with, um, you know, maybe a, a lesion or something that, that you wouldn't be able to determine that was there if you didn't do any type of imaging. So, and, and it can be really detrimental to start doing therapy exercises on patients who have an esophageal component or, you know, a structural problem. So, so this is very dangerous, these statements. Yeah. Should we talk about BCSS? We should. So that was kind of the topic we were not planning on talking about today that we just pulled out of nowhere, but Um, It does segue into what we were going to talk about originally, which is getting your board certification swallowing, which is something that both Selena and I have. And I think I speak for Selena in saying that I really, 
I, I try, how do I say this tactfully? I really have a lot of pride in the BCS in, in getting this certification. Um, and I think one of the biggest, you know, we'll talk a lot about kind of the nitty gritty and the details of it, but one of the biggest things to getting it is, you know, showing that you are advocating for patients and that you're advocating for swallowing disorders. Um, and I think going back to talking about this article again, I'm just so passionate about making sure that patients have access to instrumentation. That's just something a lot of the programs that I did when I applied for my BCS were based around advocating for instrumentals. And I think that's one of the, you know, commendable parts about this. It's not just you have this knowledge, you take a test, you're certified. Um, You actually have to do a lot of activities, a lot of advocacy activities and not just, you know, I don't want to. I don't want to degrade something, but you have to do a lot of them. You know, you can't just do one thing and say, oh, I'm an advocate for these. Um, No, it's actually pretty tough. So take it away, Selena. Where should we start with this? Why don't we start at the beginning? And I'll tell you a little bit about the American Board of Swallowing and Swallowing Disorders. Does that sound good? Sounds good. Okay. So, um, yeah. So I, um, you know, like Teresa said, it, it meant a lot to me when I first got my board certification and I felt really proud. Um, I know for me, I'm, I'm not always the most confident person in the room. And so I thought I was, I was doing good work and, and the more continuing it I took, um, and the more I learned and grew through experience, I felt I was starting to feel more and more confident as a clinician. And so when I saw this kind of came out, I watched it for a while before I finally got the courage to apply. And then when I did, I did feel a really good sense of pride. And it was almost like proving to myself that I, I was an expert in this field. I was someone who has an area of specialty and I kind of took it as a badge of honor and I'm really, and still am really proud of it. So the American Board of Swallowing and Swallowing Disorders, they basically um, have a um, mission statement They exist to safeguard and advance the care of individuals with feeding and swallowing disorders across the lifespan. And they do this by encouraging professionals to demonstrate excellence. And they do this in a number of areas through continuing education, integrated clinical practice, mentorship, research, teaching, and leadership. To achieve these goals, the board provides incentives for access to professionals um, for acknowledgement in their advanced skills, and they identify these individuals with advanced skills and and allow them to serve as mentors for other professionals um, and in healthcare communities, and then offer a list of these clinicians as speakers so that if someone is looking for someone to to give a talk based on an area within dysphagia, they can find a list from the American Board of Swallowing and Swallowing Disorders. And I think the biggest thing to think about too when you think about outreach is consumer protection. So think about patients who are going to get dysphagia therapy, if they know that there is a list of clinicians who have this specialization and have completed all the rigorous continuing continuing education to get there, that helps them kind of shop around to find the right clinician for them. On the American Board of Swallowing and Swallowing Disorders on their website, they talk about how a million people in the U.S. are diagnosed with dysphagia. About 60,000 people die annually. One in 17 will be diagnosed with dysphagia in their lifetime. Dysphagia is often underreported too. So that's just based on what we know. And 
their, their big goal is to raise awareness. As far as the board goes, in 1995, they kind of started kicking around the idea with SIG-13 members. Um, and in 2001, they formed a, a commission with the steering committee of the SIG. And the first two founding members um, were appointed to lead the group. That was Bonnie Martin-Harris and Maureen Lefton-Greif. And in 2003, they were permitted to have their first meeting at ASHA headquarters. And for the next 18 months, they worked diligently to kind of lay the foundation, create the mission statement, the application program, the test, and so on. And so by 2012, they finally transitioned from what they called the board recognized specialist in swallowing and swallowing disorder to the board certified program. And that was to be consistent with other board specializations. And the goal continues to be there. The goal of the group continues to provide a way for um, the public to identify practitioners who are spe true specialists in swallowing and um, to for us as pr practitioners, sorry, cannot get that word out today, for us as practitioners to specify the area in which we practice. So it's win-win. It's for both sides. It's to help our clients and to help us kind of promote ourselves as having this area of expertise. So I think some of the perks of BCSS is it, it sets you apart as having the specialty that not everyone has. It takes a lot of time, effort. I mean, you have to save your money to go to all these continuing eds that you have to do. And it really also shows your employer that you are hardworking, dedicated, and that you are the specialist that you are. Like I said, for me, it proved to myself that, that I have these knowledge and skills and, and it, it gave me that, that confidence boost that I needed. You know, you're, like I said, you're listed on the website. The, West, the website is swallowingdisorders.org. And so you can look on their website to find out more about all of this stuff, but also um, to find a list of specialists in your area. They're listed by state as well as population um, that they work with. And um, if you're someone who's into public speaking and you like teaching and things like that, you can also be listed as a speaker on their website. Yeah. I, yeah, I mean, like I said, I, I just love everything that it stands for, I think, because I think it, it, I think what it demonstrates is a really, you know, well-rounded clinician. And I feel weird saying that because I am board certified, but it's not, like I said, it's not just studying and taking a test. It's also, you have to demonstrate that you've done, I don't even remember the amount of hours, but hundreds and hundreds of hours of working with patients with dysphagia. So there's that point that you have to make. Um, you also have to be signed off by, you know, either, you know, administrators that you work with or doctors that you work with to basically justify that you did work those hours. Um, you have to have really strong letters of recommendation from other people and, and they can be speech pathologists, but I think they encourage it to be other professionals. So, you know, administrators or, or other physicians or just even other, um, you know, other professions that we collaborate with, you know, respiratory therapy or anything, just basically advocating to your, or, or just acknowledging your skills in this area and also, you know, that you have created new programs and, and done advocacy for swallowing disorders. And I think that's really what I just love about it so much is that it, it drove me to, I've always been someone that has advocated for something that I believed in, but I think this made me realize it was for a much greater good that I was doing it for. And I was, you know, proud to be recognized for my honor or for my 
you know, for doing it. Yeah. Yeah. Same. So if you're interested in applying, I do encourage you to go take a peek at the website, uh, Swallowing Disorders swallowingdisorders.org. Um, and if you look, they have a checklist. And so that's kind of what I started with. I went through the checklist and I was like, wow, I really have all this. I just need a few more CEUs. So that's an easy way to kind of see if you're ready. If you're not, they do have a link where you can go and, and look for a three to five year um, what do they call it? A guide to kind of help you prepare. So if you're a younger clinician or maybe you don't quite check off all the boxes, they have some suggestions to help you get there. So that's really cool too. If you're just kind of like not really sure what the next steps would be, they offer lots of suggestions there. You can also request a mentor and um, that's a really cool program. I, I volunteer as a mentor and I've gotten to know quite a few clinicians that way. Your mentor can kind of help provide you with suggestions. They will look over your application for you. And so it's just a really nice way to get another set of eyes from someone who's already gone through the process and kind of understands the way it works. Let's see. And then when you get down to the application, the application's quite a beast. It's probably one of the hardest things I've done professionally. And I'll say that honestly. <laughs> Between yeah. that and applying to be a CEU provider. Like, <laughs> yeah, I think I think to me the BCS was much more challenging. I think to become the ASHA CEU provider, it was just busy work. Uh-huh. Yeah. Um, like I don't think that was that that wasn't like hard in testing all your knowledge. Sure. You know. Yeah. Whereas this was like, crap, I better really know my stuff. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So um, you have to have uh, 75 hours of continuing education that have to have occurred within three years of your application. So that's 7.5 CEUs if you're going by the ASHA measurement. 4.5 of those 7.5 do have to be ASHA approved, but the rest can be other types of continuing ed, like if you were to take something in, within another discipline that related to dysphagia. They, they do have some regulations about how many have to be in person, but I know they've loosened up with any application that includes the year 2020, they've loosened up those regulations because we are limited in what we can do in person these days. Um, so that's really great. Um, there's lots and lots of online courses right now. Now is a great time to start looking at those things, and they're competitive. The pricing is really competitive. Some college courses count. Um, I didn't have any at the time, but I think that's really great if you're like you know taking some classes at the college level that you can use those to count towards your um, BCSS application. There's lots more details on the website. So if you're if you're thinking about it, go look at that. Um, this is basically I'm just giving you the gist here. There are multiple tracks. There's a clinical track and then an academic slash administrative track. So I obviously did the clinical track. So I'm most familiar with that, but I looked up and can give you guys some information about the um, academic and administrative track. So the clinical track, you've got to have 350 clock hours of evaluation and treat and or treatment within the three-year period. So some can include supervision, but most of these need to be like hands-on. You are doing the work with these patients. For the academic administrative track, you need 100 hours of evaluation and treatment. And then there's some other language about like how many you need within the years before then. So that's all on the website. But these are for people who are um, professors or researchers. And so they're doing other work. And so they'll show their work in their application. It's a little bit more of a different process. But I think most of us would be going with the clinical track. 
And then you need someone to sign a form verifying that you've performed that much, you know, all of those hours of therapy. And then the most fun part, I think, is the advanced skill documentation component. So that's where you get to like really brag about yourself and all like Teresa's talking about all this advocacy work that she was doing. And, you know, I was teaching classes and, and getting a lot of experience that way and, and doing some continuing ed within the organization that I worked for. And so um, it's really fun. You get to highlight all the stuff that you do and that you're, you're working on and, and kind of brag about all the cool stuff you're doing. And you just need to have ample documentation within that section. So there's categories. Let's see, what are the four categories? Education and mentorship, leadership, scholarship, and research. So I didn't really have anything in the scholarship and research, but I was able to do enough activities under the other categories that I was able to get my application accepted. So you can find all of that again on the website, but I just thought that was kind of the fun part where I could write about um, what I've been working on, what I've done, um, and some cool stuff that helped me kind of get to where I was. And then last, the last part of the application is the recommendation component. So you have three people that you reach out to to fill out this recommendation form for you. So it asks how they know you, um, how they would rank you compared to other clinicians. And then there's a grid where they document different levels if you are superior, excellent, good, fair, or poor. I think they also have not observed. So three different people will complete that for you. And this is all online now. When I did it, it was paper. So I would have to send that to my, my um, the people that I chose to, to be a reference for me. And then they had to complete it and then they would mail it. Um, so I sound like I'm 80, but um, it was really only gosh, seven years ago, I think. I know. So, I know. It's so funny to say I know, that. I know. We're like our parents I know. now. Remember back when it was just on paper? I know. I know. Sometimes I think the paper <laughs> stuff is easier though. But yeah, so now everything's online. So you just send the people the link. So it's super easy at your fingertips. The application fee is $100, so once you have it all together, then you pay the fee online, and then you wait to hear from the board, and then once you have been approved, hopefully you will get approved, then you get to sit for the test. So the exam, I studied my booty off for. Um, I was pregnant, and I would come home from work, and I would eat junk food, and I would reread my dysphagia books. Um, the test does cover peds and adults. So I was freaking out about the peds stuff because I have never worked with kids, and I just was like, oh, my God, how am I going to do this? So I just, like, reread the peds section of my textbook. I got online. I read some blogs, and um, I think I took a couple online courses about the pediatric stuff. And, um, yeah, I just beefed up on my neuroanatomy and made sure I had that, like, really in the forefront of my mind. And then you, um, you scheduled the test. You have to have a proctor when you take the test. And um, I believe the testing fee is now 300 I can't remember what it was when I took it. You take the test, you find out right away if you passed or failed. So that was like, oh. I passed. <laughs> now I can breathe um, afterwards. And then, um, and then you get your certificate shortly after. So yeah, it was, it was kind of a whirlwind of collecting the CEUs, putting together the application, and then um, taking the test was the scariest part. And then once I got it, it was awesome. And I just recently, last year, had to um, renew my membership. So it's not over. 
once you get your board certification and you get to put those letters after your name, there's, you know, if you want to keep it, you have to maintain, which is great because, you know, you don't want to just do it once and then kind of let your skills fizzle. You want to keep staying on top of the newest and greatest information. So you reapply every five years and you can do that online now. Um, there is a fee for that. Um, I don't remember what it is, um, but you include your CV, proof of your 12.5 hours of continuing ed. So you do have to keep, keep on top of that continuing ed. And then you do another written narrative talking about your skills and how you're sort of advancing in the field and how you're still qualified to hold that board certification. Um, you write yourself a biographical summary kind of updating on what you've been up to and then submit and then they approve, hopefully approve you for another five years. So, you know, I'm really proud that I was able to, to maintain it and I hope to continue to maintain it as long as I'm practicing. Um, I think it really does kind of give you a little bit of an edge. And, and for me, the biggest thing is just the confidence boost, you know, just, I, Hey, I know what I'm talking about. I have, I go to DRS, I go to these conferences, I keep learning, I keep growing and, you know, maybe I'll change something that I'm doing today based on a course I take tomorrow. Um, you say in this podcast, what my, was it my Angelou quote, when you know better, you do better. And so, mm -hmm. you know, what we know today is going to be different than what we know in a year. It's always changing. We're still learning about the swallow. And so I think it's important that, that we are being held accountable for maintaining the CEUs that we need to kind of stay on top and practice at the top of our license. Yep. Yep. Oh, I love it, Selena. Um, the one thing I will say is people will always ask, oh, what's on the test? Yes. And we actually cannot share what is on the test. So, and that's just part of the agreement of becoming board certified. So, yeah, I think it's on the website that it does cover peds and adults. And I mean, just common sense, just re really just re revamping, like making sure you're just like have everything fresh from your neuroanatomy. But other than that, yeah, we can't share the test information. Just know your stuff. Know your stuff. Yeah. I think they did say they won't put anything that's controversial. Like if there's a treatment paradigm or something that's not solid, that's not going to be on the test. So don't worry about those kind of fringe things. Just worry about like what is published and evidence-based and what's factual and what's out there. Yep. Awesome. Yes. Did we cover everything? Yeah. I have a couple more things. Yeah. Go for it. <laughs> okay. Um, I was just going to say, um, they do recommend that um, some of your continuing ed comes from advanced courses. So, you know, if you look at continuing education courses, they usually have the um, difficulty level. It'll be like beginner, intermediate, or advanced. So most of them should be intermediate, but you do want to have um, some that are advanced level. Um, and then Teresa mentioned, as far as your references go, having some people outside the field, kind of showing that you've collaborated with other, other disciplines, having a physician um, or somebody like that write a letter for you and be a reference for you is good. And speaking of continuing education, the American Board of Swallowing and Swallowing Disorders does have a new course coming out. It is um, being offered for 
0.85 ASHA CEUs, which is eight and a half hours. It's their annual Meet the Masters. It's it's going to be virtual this year, and it is called this year COVID. It's hard to swallow managing patients with dysphagia during during the pandemic. So you can find more information about that on their website. And then I was going to ask you, Teresa, if you think we should talk about the corporate partner stuff. Yeah, we can. So um, the American Board also has, and I just kind of stumbled upon this when I was first got board certified, I was looking at the website and I'm like, oh, they have this corporate partnership program. What is this? And basically what it is, is an opportunity for your company to um, partner with the American Board of Swallowing and Swallowing Disorders. There's no fee to do it. And all it is, is you sign an agreement saying that you will encourage and support your staff in and achieving or, or working toward becoming a BCSS. So I quickly hit up the owner of our company and was like, can we do this? And he said, yes. So I, you know, signed the agreement and then um, got to working on um, improving our professional ladder to include support for our clinicians moving toward achieving their BCSS. So within our, our clinical ladder, we have um, a rung where you can, um, you know, work toward that. And then we offer incentives for clinicians who do achieve the BCSS. And so it's a great opportunity to um, get your, your hospital or facility on the map as being, um, you know, someone who really cares about having quality clinicians and then also getting support for, you know, maybe you, you get an edge for a promotion or something like that. So it's worth looking into. Um, they actually put your your company's logo on their website. And so that's kind of cool too. It's free advertising. So um, you're supporting your clinician, you're advertising that you, you know, really strive to have the best clinicians within your practice that have a strong knowledge of dysphagia. And so it's a really great program. It is. All right. Any final thoughts, Selena? No, just um, if you're thinking about doing it, I encourage you to try. Um, you can at least get on the website and reach out and get a mentor and start, you know, kind of start the pro- process, look at the website, find out more information and just keep learning and growing. Yeah, yeah. I love it. I'm, I'm a big fan. I'm on. Me too. I'm, a, I'm on a few committees for it as well. I guess I should disclose that. So Selena and I chair the corporate partners committee. And then I'm also on the social social media committee and I'm also on the education committee so I'm pretty intertwined in the BCS but I don't have any say in the application process or the test or anything like that so (laughs) if people are asking that I, I have no say I can only I can only advise what I've what I've done so so all right well thank you so much Lena I'm so glad we were able to have this talk I'm glad we were able to kind of talk about what's going on at the Asha Leader and, you know, I mean, we, we, we both love what we do. I think that's the bottom line. We love what we do. We're passionate about what we do. And it's just, it stings. It really, I think I take it personally when I read things like that of just flat out not support from our professional organization and just flat out false information. So yeah. Yeah. Hopefully we'll get it right. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you so much, Selena. Thank you for having me. Yeah. To download the show notes from this episode, please visit swallowyourpridepodcast.com. There you can also sign up for our email so that you'll never miss another episode. If you like what you hear, then please subscribe, leave a review on iTunes, and share it on social media with your friends and colleagues, because that is what keeps these episodes coming. 
If you'd like to be a guest, share feedback, or request a topic to be discussed on the show, please email podcast at TeresaRichard.com. Special credit to Danny V. Socrates for her amazing audio and editing skills and to Marissa Hendrickson for managing all the things behind the scenes. As always, thanks so much for listening and see you next week.